Hi everyone, welcome to our Decolonial Perspectives and Practices Hub podcast, where we explore potential methods to decolonize our classrooms and learning environments. We launched this series as part of an initiative with BEST Concordia. Today we're talking to media practitioner and artist researcher Prakash Krishnan from Do the Kids Know about his podcast, as well as the ways we can use our positions in academia to advance our activism. This is part one of a two-part series, and they're both not to be missed. Did you guys meet each other before, Chaz and Jamila, with Prakash? Oh yeah, Prakash and I worked together on the video project, and we've met actually with at ear events. We've been like talking for a long time, and on Instagram. Yeah, <laughs> good old Instagram. <laughs> oh, Instagram buddies. <laughs> That's great. And you, Chaz? No, I think maybe we may have bumped into each other at an event, but we didn't get the opportunity to to talk actually. So this is a first. So I was thinking maybe we could like do a quick round of introduction, but then like spend some time listening to your work, Prakash, on your amazing podcast. Okay, so hello everyone. My name is Prakash Krishnan. I am a MA candidate in media studies at Concordia University. I also do some teaching, some writing, filmmaking, and podcasting. And I do all these in an attempt to bridge the work I'm doing in academia with the community-based work background that I have. My podcast is called Do the Kids Know, and I'm excited to talk to you about it today. That's great. So it's dothekidsknow.ca, right? As simple as that. Yes, dothekidsknow.ca to listen to all the episodes. Uh, They're on all of the platforms. And the social media for Twitter, Instagram, Facebook is uh, to do the kids now. Chess, do you want to give us a quick background on who you are? Hi, I'm Chess, and I'm at Concordia doing a master's in translation studies. It's about creating cross people allyship through translation, rooted in transracial allyship in indigenous texts, and it's all oral literature. And I found out part of the hub, so we are all working together and we co facilitate events to help organizations and departments decolonize themselves. And we're extending our reach now into community work so that we could be a super connector and bridge different agents of change cross institutionally and also para institutionally. And if not, as ever be here, I have my own satellite project. So just launched my startup during the pandemic. So it's an activistic startup and I do more of the things that we're talking about. And it's about promoting industrial innovation through anti-coloniality and transdisciplinary energy. So that's kind of the gist. And if not, Alvan, I'll just pass it on to you. <laughs> okay, thank you. That makes startup, that's funny. <laughs> so I'm Alban. I'm also finishing my master's at Concordia in social and cultural anthropology. I'm looking at uh, mobile technology use in uh, a rural area in Tanzania um, with a self-identified indigenous group called the Maasai. And yeah, I've been part of the hub with uh, these two wonderful ladies and Connie, who can't make it today, unfortunately, since uh, early last year. So also kind of a pandemic roller coaster, but it's been great. So, <laughs> so here we are trying to decolonize. And yeah, this podcast was kind of a, a spin-off from our events because some topics seem to really be worth looking more into and having a kind of a different format to explore these conversations. And then when we heard about your experience with that, Prakash, we're like, wow, we really need to learn from you and to get you on our podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Go, Jamila. Hi, everybody. So nice to see everyone here today and talk to everyone listening. 
I'm Jamila, so I'm a PhD of sociology student uh, in social and cultural analysis in the same department as um, Alban and Connie. I do work on decolonial pedagogy, indigenous diasporic and global voices inside of the education system in Canada. And I also do work on black empowerment. My PhD thesis is gonna be on how black men and women contribute to the Canadian social fabric. And so it's gonna be a documentary. I don't know how that's gonna work with COVID-19, but we'll see how that's gonna work. I also work with Prakash on the Anti-Racist Video Project. And so this is really exciting and uh, yeah, looking forward to what comes from this discussion. Amazing. So Prakash, for your podcast, can you tell us a little bit more about like how you decided to frame this for kids and why and like kind of how you got started? Yeah, so we launched in June of this year of 2020 as a little quarantine project. Uh, I say we, it's a collaboration between myself and my friend Kristen, who is a Jamaican archivist. We both went to high school together and then found each other again in Montreal and started, yeah, just have a, um, wanted to do something collaboratively that bridged our two different uh, sources of expertise into one kind of pedagogical tool for people to access. And the original idea of a podcast came out last year. We wanted to have like hour-long episodes that were more thematically based around BIPOC, so like Black, Indigenous, and people of color spaces for mental relaxation or venting or just like having the space for us to talk about, I guess, kind of the issues that we face living under a white supremacist, patriarchal, colonial society. So a couple of those interviews did make into this current iteration, but then in quarantine, we decided that we wanted to reframe to make it something a lot more straightforwardly educational. And because we found that in a lot of mainstream discourse around things like allyship, around abolition, there was a lot of, there was a kind of like a critical thinking piece, and piece missing. And, you know, we're having these conversations all the time with each other and with our friends. So we thought that it would be effective to instead of having the same conversation 19 different times in our different group chats, let's just record it, put it online and let people kind of have that resource to access. And the name is a little bit misleading because it's called Do the Kids Know, but the kids are like y'all, like adults, <laughs> maybe like a teen plus audience. It might be more kid friendly. However, I really struggle with not swearing. I think that was like one of the hardest challenges for me in grad school. Being like, hmm, okay, can't say half of my vocabulary. Interesting, interesting. Okay, let me try to uh, let me try to like work on my own eloquence and literacy. But uh, and also a lot of topics are quite like mentally and emotionally challenging. Like talking about uh, immigration detention, about police violence, and not that children should not be unaware of these or that they're not possible for children to grasp. I think kids are so smart and brilliant. But yeah, I think just because of our Christianized like general attitude is more geared towards uh, an adult audience. But you know, people at all ages, I think, uh, need to do this work of learning and unlearning. I think kids got it. You know, I'm on, I'm on TikTok. I mean, I'm not on it. I'm just like watching the compilations, and I'm like, these kids are so smart, so creative. Like they know. It's like people like us. Like I think like millennials, older millennials, Gen Xs, older, that um, are so stuck within the systems of like capitalism and colonialism that they're like, oh, this is working for us. Why rock the boat? But I think it's like truly the younger people who are like, no, 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 we need to rock it, topple it, burn it, and let's start anew. 
Yeah, that's amazing. When you decided to say, like, do the kids know? Is it we're all kind of kids or is it the kids part of us? I think that we're all kids. You know, I've been lying about my age for like five years now. I was like, no, I'm not ready to be in my mid-20s, late-20s. I'm just going to hold it off at 24. And so I've been 24 for like five times now. And I'm like, you know what? I'm still young. <laughs> There's an idea of an adulthood that's like a kind of finality that once you become an adult, you're finished. You like figured out life. You do your dishes immediately and, you know, whatever. And... I really want to challenge that idea with the podcast that at any point you are done learning. Because uh, I think even listening back to some of the early episodes or like after recording, I will like do more research. I'm like, oh, there are so many things that I didn't even know to include or that we'll get to the end of an episode. And I'm like, oh, but I have like nine more things to talk about. And like a lot of things I think come to my knowledge like through discourse. And I never want to ever feel comfortable with thinking that I know everything or that I'm done learning or growing and I think the kids part of that like really invokes that that we are all children we're all learning and growing and you know we shouldn't stunt ourselves too early that's awesome I was gonna ask you I think it's just fantastic the work that you're doing and especially the fact that you're really focusing on you know this really like gen z generation of just like mobilization and my question is we've been talking a lot in the how about multimedia activism and what the possibilities could be for action from, for example, like a podcast. And so like when you're thinking about the listeners in the audience, are you thinking about like, what do you expect them to be doing from your podcast? Do you think they're gonna be just like, their knowledge is gonna be growing and all that kind of stuff? Or do you think they're going to be getting up, taking arms? Like what is the ideal response for the audience for you? Well, I think for the audience, I have in mind a very like specific niche, which are people who are around my age group, like 20s to 30s, who are on the left, you know, who like probably like vote liberal RNDP and who are like in agreement that we should defend the police, but maybe not understand complete abolition as a, as a principle or think that might be a little bit too far. So I'm trying to get people who are on the left to push them really towards a progressive ideology. And the actions that follow that could take up many different kinds of different kinds of forms. Like not everyone is able to get onto the streets and march, you know, in every protest. That's just not available to people for you know a variety of reasons. It could be um, you know, maybe they live in rural areas, maybe they're disabled, maybe you have extreme social anxiety, especially now in like these COVID times, like I don't fault anyone for not being able to feel able to like gather in crowds. There is also certain kinds of like limits with only the showing up aspect of protesting. Like we need people in every single lane of this highway towards like, towards uh, indigenous resurgence, towards radicalization, towards toppling these really oppressive systems. And so I think the goal for me is to get people to like realize where they have access, power and privilege. So I am like, you know, a famously broke <laughs> uh, person. Um, again, <laughs> trying hard to, not to swear. But um, and yet, totally, I don't have endless amounts of money until I donate to causes. Um, and so, but if someone who has like a higher paying job, you know, who's like not a student, has access to money, but maybe not access to time, we often will provide links to places to donate, places to get involved, to volunteer time. I think it's about people finding their individual ways in which to like support a particular cause or to further their education, because I think like knowledge is power 
but I think that's like, I, I really believe that to be true. It's not just enough to read, but to take action. I'm not trying to tell anyone specifically what that action is because we all have different capabilities and the action might not be like you listen to the podcast on Wednesday and then on Thursday you're marching. It might be you're learning all these things and then maybe like sometime in the future you have the option to like hire someone who was formerly incarcerated or maybe you can um, use your position to like mentor someone else who's maybe like a young racialized inner queer person. Yeah, so I really just hope that it like broadens people's minds and like helps people see what is in the realm of possibility for them at the various stages of their lives and their path. So Pragesh, I have another question for you. I'm gonna pivot a little bit to build off of what Alban was saying about like multimedia activism. Because initially we were talking about how the podcast, you know, was in a way answering this critical piece that is missing in a lot of our education. So my question to you is let's say how do you see the process that drives your podcast as something that could be very informative for how we format like the academic education, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've had a very like tumultuous academic path. I did my undergrad in Ontario and I started off in nuclear engineering and then I switched to physics and then I worked so in cool. a... <laughs> it's like my one party trick that's like, it's like really like fun trivia that oh yeah you know like I had this job for a year where I like was waist deep in like nuclear waste or whatever. Wow. Um, this realized I was too cute for nuclear waste disposal. I was meant for something uh, bigger and better. Uh, I moved to Montreal, got these like random like media and copywriting and marketing jobs. Then I did a diploma in Concordia for communication studies, thinking it would be corporate communications. Got there and we're re- reading Michelle Foucault, and I'm googling like Michelle like the feminist spelling, like F-U-K-O. Turns out Michelle Foucault is like a, a white French man. Like, hmm, interesting. And I think like Concordia's approach to research creation, not that it's unique to Concordia, but that was the first time I was introduced to the idea that like something artistic or creative or based in like a media that's consumable by a non-academic audience can still be considered scholarship. Yeah, I thought that this is like so integral to, uh, yeah, this idea of multimedia activism because not everyone, you know, has the capabilities to, on their free time, read critical race theory, you know, like source all these various Canadian news media outlets to see what's missing or, you know, to like dissect the problematic aspects of like certain coverage of these stories. Because one, not everyone has a kind of media literacy, uh, not everyone is trained to do that. It does take a lot of like work and practice. And this is something that I am still, you know, every day, working on my own liter- my own media literacy and analysis. And I don't think that everyone should have to do that work. I think like, ideally we would have, you know, media and journalists who, who are doing that work, but because of the ways that the Canadian broadcast media is structured, that's like not possible. So I think this is like thinking about, yeah, what are the ways that I can even like, you know, do this like activist or advocacy work. Okay, I am, I am also someone who, yeah, is not able to like donate a lot of money, a lot of time, but I'm someone who's doing a lot of this work of like media analysis uh, in my, you know, for myself. So this is like one way where I can hopefully try to communicate knowledge and do some of this like cultural translation that other people might not be able to do for a number of reasons. I love what you're saying. And I think what's great is, you know, you were talking about privilege, right? Early on, power and privilege on the podcast. 
And I feel it's so great that we can construe privilege as something that is not necessarily monetary. So using your podcast as sort of in-kind activism is how I would see it, because, you know, we have different privileges and underprivileges, so we don't have access to financial heaps of money, but what we can do is create this like multimedia platform. And I love that you say about having media that, you know, uh, repurpose it as a consumable uh, packaging of education, because that's another way that you're bridging, you know, different gaps. That's so great. Are there other things that you can think of in the podcast? You know, because I know you guys are covering a lot of grounds, but what are other intersections you would say come to mind about the work that you guys do? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we have like lots of like different ideas because I think podcasting is like a really key medium for the reasons that you said. Uh, It's like very easy to start. You can, you can truly do it for absolutely free. It might not be you know, the easiest way to go about it or the highest quality, but it can be done. Our stuff is like very cheap. Truly what we're doing is paying, you know, like with our with our time. And I also really like the idea of, of doing this as an in-kind <laughs> kind of um, activism. And yeah, I've thought a lot about other ways to do this work. I've dabbled a little bit in like filmmaking and trying to think about ways that we can imbue a kind of pedagogical framework within like fictional narrative work that does does this work of education through not only like me telling you the traumas that uh, black and brown people face, but also through like the joys of everyday life, the the joys of experience, the ways that the effects of society have on our everyday lives. Like I think showing these like visually uh, in a way like through through the documentary or through fictional narratives are one way of also doing this work that might appeal to an audience who maybe the podcast medium doesn't work for. Uh, I know particularly like I have a lot of insecurity around my voice and the way that I speak and I know the things that I say, the way that I, the way that I communicate is not available also for everyone, especially people who might not be native English speakers. So finding ways to bring in other people with a diversity of voices, languages, experiences who can give a more informed experience through their own lived experience or give them more informed perspective i should say i think that there are lots of other like podcast uh, filmmakers uh, writers producers who are doing this work and i would just again love to either collaborate help produce other works by like young and eager artists and media makers yeah but i don't think i have like at least right now like one particular thing that I'm trying to aim for, but just thinking about a lot, taking it week by week. <laughs> I love it. I love what you're saying, using imagery to undo like uh, language barriers. I think it's a beautiful narrative, like to play with a medium within a medium. Mm-hmm. So to look at visuals as a way to craft a different sort of educational narrative that broadens access. And like you're saying, I feel there's never a perfect medium, which is why being multimedia is great because there's always gonna be a way that that medium denies or enhances uh, access to certain folks. So diversifying yourself across that spectrum is so great. I had never heard of like the podcaster filmmaker titles. <laughs> I just, I'm already in love right now. I know I'm gonna be looking it up. <laughs> so I'm wondering as well, when I read the title of your podcast, which I know it's not at all about kids now, but you know how we see a lot on social media is all these videos of kids like seeing difference differently and basically like 
embracing whoever they see on the street or things like that. I think all of us have seen some of these like happy videos. So I was wondering whether kids like younger or teenagers or a little bit older or kids like us, do they know somehow, I think you said earlier, they do know and they're smart and they're like, we should learn from them and, and learn what we have, what we have learned. But are there things that we can kind of share with the people around us, kids and older kids, so that things they know, they kind of keep knowing, like what is it that we need to share with them so that they keep that learning very much front line, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I think at least the kids that I have experienced with like in the past through like family or I used to actually work at a school for children with disabilities. And I think across the board, like children are just like very curious individuals and they ask a lot of questions. Sometimes those questions are very uncomfortable for adults to answer and children don't really know why you're like, you know, they can tell when you're, when you're not being direct or when you're avoiding them, like they, like they know, like kids are really perceptive. And I really think, you know, we, you don't have to be a licensed teacher, you know, to be an educator. I think often, you know, with our families, with people who are impressionable around us, this could be our friends, this could be, you know, even our parents. Like we are always in positions of doing education, this idea of making things teachable moments. And if you're someone who has children in your life, like be really open to their questions and understand that I think children can handle a lot more than we give them credit for, even though the questions are uncomfortable. And there are always ways to filter information for a level of their understanding. So if they're like preschool age asking you, like, where do babies come from? Like, you can be honest. You can say, hey, when a man and woman, uh, when they decide they want to have a baby, uh, a baby grows, you know, inside of a, you know, inside of a uterus, and then it comes out nine months later, and then there's a baby. And like, see, you know, test the water, see if that's a satisfactory answer, and then work your way from there. I think like this works for a lot of things, for a lot of topics, and I think media is a really good mediator, <laughs> for lack of a better word, to do this. So if you're like watching the news, you know, and your children are, or the kids around you are, you know, like also seeing this, explain to them what they're seeing on the screen, you know? They're asking, like, why are people protesting? Uh, explain, okay, well, like, there's actually a lot, like, a high rate of violence for police onto Black and racialized people. So people are asking for the city to take money away from the police and put that into community groups to help people in other ways, right? And there shouldn't really be a reason why you have to hide the world from your kids. I really understand adults' perspectives on wanting to, like, protect their children. But kids are going to learn either way, right? Especially, you know, in this age where everyone's got a phone or access to a phone or the internet, you'd rather that information come from you than hearing it secondhand from like, you know, a suspicious source. Yeah, and I think that was kind of the case for me. My parents were like super upfront about everything. I remember my mom like explaining to me like how periods work when I was like super young because I saw her pads. And I was like, oh, what's this? And she explained like, yeah, so every like, you know, once a month, women from, from a certain age, like, bleed. And I was like, okay, chill, like, I don't know. I was like, whatever. <laughs> like, is it gonna happen to me? No? All right, I'm good. Like, you, you, you do you, uh, <laughs> and I'll be chilling over here. And yeah, I think just really being open and honest and thinking about, um, yeah, you know, sharing the world with the children. Like, they, they got it. And 
there's no use hiding that the world is terrible. Like they know. <laughs> Thinking about like the interactions with the kids, I feel what's great is that in a way compels us adults to have to deal with our own like emotional intelligence, however fragile it is. Because I was thinking how, you know, we're doing different workshops with different organizations and entities, and we have this segment called like tension diffusion tools. And I feel how it's interesting that when you work with kids, um, you, you have like to, you're prompted to deal with this much more transparently than with adults, because adults will also be trying to equivocate and trying to circumvent the issue. And so if you have two adults in the room who decide not to talk about it, it will happen. But if you have a kid in the room, the adults are pulled away from their protective, you know, narrative of denial. And then they have to tap into this kind of very interesting emotional intelligence, whether or not they want to. So I think it's like a, a different shift in energy, particularly when, like you're saying, we're talking about those important topics and the kids intuit a lot of the depth that we don't want to get into for our own convenience. So I feel it's very fascinating and maybe I'm just making this up. I eventually have workshops or have kids. So people <laughs> call that on their BS, but <laughs> yeah, no, I think this is like so true, especially in academia. I have never heard so much beating around the bush until I entered this university and listening to professors talk to each other. And I'm like, what are you saying? What are you saying? I asked you what day of the week it was, and you gave me like a 25 page old dissertation about like the weather. And I didn't ask for this. I just wanted to know if it was Tuesday or Wednesday. Like, <laughs> and yeah, I, I don't really know what that's about. I think, yeah, you know, just pop a baby into the corner. Okay, let's talk about, I don't know, like ethnography and like ethics of, let's, you know, go and like talk to you, like, like talk about it as if one of you is like, I don't, maybe, not, maybe not a baby, but maybe like a 16 year old, right? Like someone who's like thinking about, social sciences, right, who, who has like some understanding of the English language, like talk to them in a way that is clear, is concise, stop saying the ways in which, just say how, you know, like let us just get to the point. It's so interesting. No, I think it would be great even thinking of a critical pedagogical framework to have paper projects being repurposed in a digestible way to go back to what you were saying about the podcast, right? You have to keep the integrity of the content, but make it concise and intelligible to people that are not conversant in your own academic uh, jargon. Because I feel it trims away a lot of those elements and it's a way also to make you know, higher education something that can be mainstreamed as opposed to living this you know, um, Ivy Tower. So I feel there are many ways to leverage intergenerational you know, like dialogue, even within the academy to force out the impulses towards decolonization and self-protection of the supremacy state and then to make it inclusive as well and to force it into like a direct conversation with like contemporary realities instead of always going back to those old texts from however you know whatever century but to always force it to interact with something real concrete and to make it a tool of you know educational um you know advocacy at the end of the day so i think there's a lot to be gleaned from you know, borrowing your words, popping a baby in the corner. I really love that. <laughs> <laughs> I would put a t-shirt, pop a baby in the corner. My new 2021 merch. <laughs> I love it. Thank you everyone for joining us. Make sure to tune in for the second part of this episode coming out shortly. And don't forget to check out our Facebook page called the Decolonial Perspectives and Practices Hub. And feel free to share with us your opinions, feedback, or brilliant ideas. See you soon.